You are listening to The Office Hours, a podcast that inspires young dentists to pursue their passions and make an impact in dentistry. My name is Dr. Thomas Nguyen, and I'm a professor at the Harvard School of Dental Medicine. I'm sitting down with the experts in the field to talk about their careers, their life, and the lessons they've learned. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Episode 7 of Office Hours with Professor Nguyen. Today, we're sitting down with Dr. Rick Myron for a conversation about his unusual academic journey. Hey, Rick. Hello, how are you doing? Uh, good, and you? Good, thank you for the kind introduction. So my first time on, uh, on an actual Instagram video, so this is a first for me. Well, thank you so much for doing this. And uh, a lot of people don't know, but you have a very interesting uh, journey and you're also Canadian, which is amazing. It's true, yep. Yeah. Uh, that's the most important thing, right? <laughs> so um, let's start from the beginning. Like, how did a French Canadian from North Bay, Ontario, end up doing a PhD in Switzerland? Um, can you tell us a bit, like, sure. what went on there? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I was very fortunate when I was younger um, in my high school, when I was 13 years old, our science teacher was a PhD. And he had published many research articles in high impact factor journals, et cetera. And so I was 13, uh, 14, and we had this professor essentially in high school <laughs> and he was teaching grade nine, grade 10, grade 11 science. And so you're asking what the heck was this guy that was that smart doing teaching at high school with a PhD and a doctor and everything. And uh, he just wanted to help contribute to young people and their success. And so from that, I started doing science for projects and uh, we were successful in them, of course, because we had obviously a very strong mentor. And uh, that turned into a scholarship to go to university where I was at Western. Uh, and then I did a master's project. Um, and every year in Canada, there's scholarships for CIHR and NSERC. I think maybe you're familiar with some of these. And uh, I ended up winning one of them that gave me a full scholarship. So it was a full ride. And it allowed me to go basically anywhere in the world uh, mm -hmm. to study. And at the time I was doing a Stroman ITI research grant and I was very well connected. So I did a two year masters and every two weeks or so I was discussing with the headquarters at Stroman. Mm. And um, after, you know, about a year of doing this, they said, why don't you come to Switzerland and do an actual project with basically the ITI foundation headquarters, what I call it University of Bern <laughs> uh, with Daniel Boozer and Tony Schoolian. So that, you know, one thing led to the other, and then all of a sudden in 2009, I was living in Switzerland, uh, working with some of the top researchers in dentistry. Oh, that, that's amazing. And what do you do in, because you said you did your undergrad and then you did a master's. Mm -hmm. uh, were they also related and somehow in dentistry? Like, I mean. Yeah, absolutely. So actually since a young age, I always wanted to be a dentist. So hmm. I, was, uh, this, I don't have parents that are dentists or anything. That's very strange, but when I was a kid, I would actually draw pictures of myself being a dentist when I was like eight years old. I just love my dentist and everything about him. And so I always wanted to be a dentist despite having nobody in science. And it was something that I always wanted to do. And so when I was, you know, 14, 15, 16, uh, I pursued kind of sciences because the more I was meeting uh, important dentists that were well known and, you know, well respected. So when you see Danny Boozer come to the ITI in Canada, everybody's like, oh, here comes the top guy in implant dentistry, et cetera. And you start to realize that most of these top guys are doing a lot of research, right? They're well known for whatever they've done, whether it be Zucchelli or Tony Schoolian or all these guys are really heavily contributors of, of the field. And so I decided to, you know, follow in a similar footstep. And uh, it was important for me to do these research articles. 
um, early in my career. And so that's how I got started. And of course, since then, when you start publishing, it's a little bit like any other skill. Uh, for example, for you to do soft tissue grafting now, you probably do it at two, three times the speed of a normal person because you're used to doing it, you're teaching it, you're familiar with all the techniques, you teach the techniques. And so for me, it's the same thing, you know, after you've written about a hundred or more articles, they become easier uh, like anything else. And so now I'm just able to do a lot of these research projects a lot more efficiently probably than most people can. And of course, I'm very fortunate to have worked in what I consider probably one of the top schools in the world, which is in Bern. So, of course, when you're working with a guy like uh, Boozer and Spoolian, you know, they aren't the easiest guys in the world. You know, they're pushing you hard and, and you have to publish lots and you have to keep the reputation of the school. So when you put all those things together, that's what helps. Uh, that, that's what helped me become successful. But that must have been such an amazing opportunity for you at such a young age, working with them, knowing like all the big names. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We it, like it was very strange actually in Berm when we got there. Uh, Tony Schoolian had just become the new chair, and um, you know Klaus Lang was the previous chair. You know Klaus Lang is like the big name in Perio, kind of the Godfather, and so he was retired and he would come every week and give like a history of Perio uh, to our graduate program. So you got to sit there and listen to him, and then you know all these other great guys that come in and just give their background knowledge and everything so it was just an amazing experience i always say you know when i wrote my biomaterials textbook which ended up uh, doing quite well with quintessence and i wrote it with ufun we were both two young guys i went there when i was 23 or 24 years old and i had this opportunity where every single company wants to work with boozer and schoolian and klaus lang and all these big names right they want they want to make sure that schoolian's using the new growth factor boozer's using the new implant system and so they would always get bombarded with all these companies wanting to do the work with different growth factors, bone grafts, et cetera. And instead of those guys actually testing them because they're so busy lecturing and teaching and doing research on, on other things, they would give it to us. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these biomaterials, I was actually the first person to test them in the whole world. So when Stroman was coming out with the new implant system, for instance, they would want it to be affiliated with a guy like Dr. Boozer. And, uh, you know, we'd get these in the lab and we start doing in vitro work with them, start doing animal studies with them. And so it was really, really cool to, um, you know, see these things. Oh, that, that's amazing. And after you were done with your PhD in 2009, this is when you went back to dental school? You know, I did them uh, a little bit overlapping with one another. So it was a little bit different, too. Mm -hmm. I had done, um, you know, PhD, when you do it, it's usually multiple years long and it encompasses several research projects that you're going to do. And so I actually was not done my PhD when I started dental school, and I was doing both at the same time. And at Laval University in Canada, the reason why I wanted to go there uh, was one was four years. Four, it was four years. Yeah, that's one thing. But also the summers were very long. Mm. You know, the summer months were two, three months. And so as opposed to another dental school, which might have only had a couple weeks or a month, I had two, three months. And every single two, three months, well, what would I do? I flew back to Switzerland and I'd go back and live in Switzerland and I'd keep working on the research project. Then when I would go back to dental school, I would do normal dentistry, but in the evenings and on weekends, I'd write the articles from the research that I did in the summer months. Okay? <laughs> so when I actually did dental school, it's kind of crazy to think back on it, but I published nearly 40 articles in my four-year dental school. You must, you must have been the most knowledgeable dental student there. You know, it's different. Uh, I think as you get very experienced in, in, uh, 
in dentistry, so to speak, you're, you're, you know this much, but you know it very, very well, right? So it's like, there's many, many things to know in dentistry. I don't know very much about root canals and I'm sure the average dentist knows much, much more about many topics. But what I know a lot about is really just specifically on platelet-rich fibrin and on biomaterials. And so the more and more you do research, it's kind of the more and more focused you get on just that one topic. And then, of course, that's when you become, quote unquote, let's say an expert on that one field. So that's kind of where I'm at right there. I mean, there's many things that, um, you know, many just a general dentist would know much, much better than I do when it comes to composite resins and, and endodontic procedures and prosthodontics. I mean, there's many things that um, I was just an average student. But whenever the topic of platelet rich fiber would come up, of course, and I was in fourth year dental school, then, yeah, I did know a lot in that case. So. <laughs> what, what year did you graduate dental school? Because I know we have so many friends in common. And... Yeah. I was there and finished in 2011 is when I was there. Mm. And then uh, I lived in Switzerland thereafter and I became the head of preclinical research. Uh, oh, so it was kind of a interesting uh, thing that occurred was that whenever I was just finishing dental school, about four months before finishing, uh, Reinhard Gruber was uh, the head of the cell biology lab. So he was actually my mentor. And he was, a, a, he was from Vienna, from Austria. And so he went from Vienna to Bern and became head of this top school. Um, but after living there for a number of years in Vienna and Austria, they missed him a lot, of course, because he was a big name and very well connected with the Osteology Foundation. He got offered a full dean position in research. And so he took that position and he took that position right when I was about to finish dental school. And then I got the call to go back and become the head of preclinical research in Bern, which was obviously a very big, uh, uh, honor to be like head of preclinical research for guys like Boozer and Schoolian. Mm. And uh, of course there, you know, when I was there, um, I remember actually when I was there, it's kind of crazy to think about it, but I was working with Dieter Bosard and would, when we would sit in our meetings, you know, you have guys like Boozer, Klaus Lang, Tony Schoolian, all these huge <laughs> names that are sitting around a round table. And we would have to present the research topics that we were working on currently. And I remember one time we had to put like lists together for all our big bosses. And uh, between Dieter Bosart and I, we were working on over a hundred different research articles at the same time. Uh, how is it possible? Like, yeah, I mean, I oh. look. Got a phone call. It was way higher than where I'm at right now in terms of, uh, you know, uh, I could never do that, so to speak now, but it was just, you're in that zone, you're a little bit intimidated, so, so to speak, you know, I was scared because every single time that I would walk into uh, a room, a meeting room, and I'd have all these big names, like, you know, the, these top guys in their respective fields, I was always the weakest link, always. You know, I was the guy that knew the less, and uh, the way I viewed it was just, if, I, if I'm this little guy and I'm working with all these big guys and I'm to be respected, then I would have to work uh, insanely harder in order to basically contribute to this very powerful team. And that's mm -hmm. kind of how I got around that. So that's why you'll see by the time the years 2015, 2016, I mean, uh, we were publishing almost an article a week. And I don't mean just some no nonsense journals. These are, you know, Journal of Dental Research, Journal of Clinical Perio, uh, Clinical Oil and Plant, all the high impact journals. Um, and I've published a few articles in Impact Factors over 20, which is quite hard to do as a, in the dental field. Yeah, of course. It was just because I was uh, just scared out of my mind to work with these guys. You know, I wanted to impress them and just be part of the team. So, uh, mm. uh, so 
is this something you would recommend like so for someone who knows since the start he wants to be an academic and do research would you recommend doing a phd first and then go to dental school not necessarily no it depends what your passion is i mean you know you have to find something that you enjoy doing that's number one most important thing and i tell people that are young as well you know if your thing is you want to be a surgeon and you want to be very good at soft tissue grafting the best thing that i can give advice to is just follow whatever your dreams are and if you need to be you want to be known as a great clinician then start doing clinic clinical work as early as possible get your masters in perio as early as possible then do your phd and you know the the path to get there is a little bit different than in my case because i wanted to be known for biomaterials you know that was something that i I enjoy doing and I enjoy developing biomaterials or developing new platelet-rich fibrin system. I had a lot of fun developing osteogame with Stroman mm. um, and just working on, you know, projects now like Tetranite that I'm doing a lot of work with Michael Picos. And, you know, I'm just a little bio biology geek that, you know, is helping develop these materials. And then I give them off when the time comes to use them in clinical practice. You know, you say, here you go, Tony Schoolian, here's osteogame, let me know how it works. And you go to Michael Picos and you say, here's Tetranite. Let me know how it works and we try and write the research articles with these big guys so you know i'm just a little guy in the background that's uh, <laughs> writing the writing the articles um but you're also an entrepreneur if i understand you have your own company uh, you know, for so, we, so we we do research you know okay. we do research and we develop biomaterials for different uh individuals so you know everything to do with biopurf system uh was originally a couple of years ago uh, PRF was becoming more and more popular. BioHorizons had purchased the interest bin, and um, you know Stroman was looking to get a system. And so in that case, there, like I said, I just started working on that system, and it's been a plan to have them launch it. Um, and probably it would have been done already had COVID not happened. And we worked mm -hmm. in partnerships with companies like this. So you know whether it was Ostrogain that we were developing or or BioPRF, you know, there's always kind of an end player that we have in mind. You know, I don't plan to be a manufacturing facility and do all these things. We try to develop them and then do the science behind it. And then when it's all ready to go, then, you know, you hand it over to a bigger company who's then going to launch it uh, professionally. You know, I could never be an international distributor by any means yes. in that space. So, yeah. I, I just want to say that you have a huge fan at Harvard and her name is Stacy. She, she's actually oh. the one who told me that, oh, you should talk to Dr. Rick. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, oh yeah, sure. I'll, I'll reach out to him. <laughs> But she just said horizontal centrifuge. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, you know, it was a lot of work that we did in that, that area. But, you know, a lot of people get misconceptions over uh, that whole field because, you know, horizontal centrifuges has been around for a really, really long time. And, um, you know, we just utilize the system that if you go to a lab, as I'm sure you know, if you went to Harvard and you go to a lab, they're all going to be horizontal centrifuges. Mm. All because the swing out bucket is more effective at separating layers. And so even when I talked to, you know, Robert Marks, Bob Marks, Professor Marks down in uh, Miami who invented PRP and uh, even Arun Garg and these originators of PRP, they did a lot of work with horizontal centrifuges as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the way that I kind of, kind of came about just having that in the PRF world was, I remember with plastic surgeons, you know, when PRF started getting a little bit more and more popular and I'm living in Florida, imagine the people that are contacting me now are plastic surgeons. They want to do these facial aesthetic procedures, but they want to use PRF instead of PRP because they're reading that it's better. And so I'm getting invited to go to these plastic surgeons offices 
and uh, teaching them play the rich vibrant. And when I showed the guy the system, he said, why are you using a fixed angle system? And I looked at him and I said, I don't know. I never really thought about it. And he said, that's completely stupid. He's like, that doesn't separate layers properly. And I went back to the lab that night and I said, why are we using fixed angle centrifuges? <laughs> and that's actually kind of how that idea came about. And uh, that person's name is Alan Bowman. And he uh, does a lot of hair transplants and hair regeneration with PRP. And he actually just contributed to a chapter in our textbook on uh, PRF and facial aesthetics and did mm -hmm. some work in the hair field. So, you know, you, you learn from everybody. I always try and tell people I didn't invent anything because I don't want to get in the game of, you know, the ego battles because people say, oh, I did this, I did that. I just say I invented nothing. I'm just trying to optimize things for, for other colleagues and just keep it that way there. So. You've talked about so many names like uh, Schoolin, Boozer, um, Picos. Um, who had the most influence on your career and who do you look up most to? Well, I mean, uh, I look up to all of them. Uh, there's no question. Uh, and uh, I would say probably the people that have helped me in my life have really been in different time periods, right? So I would say um, originally for science, like I said, getting involved with uh, my high school mentor who was a PhD, I dedicated my, my next gen biomaterials book to him. Uh, unfortunately, we lost him to a, a heart attack at, when he was 65. And so I created a scholarship actually with all the royalties from that book, which go to uh, in, in North Bay, Ontario for in his honor. And he had a tremendous impact when I was younger. Um, I think without question, the person that has helped me the most in academics has been uh, Tony Schoolian. Uh, he's just a phenomenal clinical researcher. Uh, he's very highly motivational, so it's a lot of fun to work with him because he's just so, he's such a nice guy for one, but he's always working hard. And his philosophy, you know, I don't think there's a single person that's working as hard as him. And so he just leads by example, so to speak. He wasn't this guy that was like, you know, sometimes you get professors that are like, go do all this work. And then, you know, they're not really working that hard. He was the opposite. Uh, he was right, you know, in there uh, Sunday evenings at 10 p.m. He was still out there working sometimes. And uh, I've known him for 10 plus years. And so he's been really impactful for, for that space and that period of my life. And he's still a big part of what I do every single day. So he's mm. probably scientifically the person that I collaborate with the most. And then uh, Dr. Picos, I think has had the biggest impact on my career since moving back to North America. You know, I was so surprised actually, um, I actually met him in uh, Tampa when I was doing a PRF course and he was sitting there in the front row uh, because a mutual colleague had invited him to come just learn a little bit about what we're doing with flavor fiber and a little bit about me. And I think maybe he had cited some of my work. So he had probably read my names with some of the autogenous phone papers. And uh, I remember meeting him and he was just the nicest guy in the world and had a lot of mutual interest. And uh, I was always used to working with a guy like Daniel Boozer or, or Tony Schoolian. So I was always, you know, when I was developing biomaterials or I was like, Hey, you know, I have, I have the bioheat now, you know, we just did work with the bioheat and heating plasma. Can you try it, Tony Schoolian? Well, I didn't have that person in North America mm -hmm. and that became, you know, Dr. <laughs> Pico. So he was just this huge expert um, and has been really, really helpful for me in my career. Uh, and I get the opportunity to uh, teach in his courses that are so well attended. Of course, he's so well known internationally and it's a lot of fun to collaborate with him in both his bone grafting as well as sinus grafting courses. So it's been great to work with him as well. Yeah, so there's no one person, like I said, they all just add up and 
probably later on there'll be more as well and you know you just keep going and uh appreciate all of their their impact i always say you know your mentors are so important for you when you asked the question earlier about you know how what would you do in your career would you do a phd first or this or that i think your mentor is probably the most important person for for a young person because they can open a lot of doors they can connect you with a lot of companies and do research you can get grants whereas if you try and do all these things by yourself it's very very difficult so yeah and yeah the, dr picos i've met him a couple of times like even for someone who's as famous he's so humble and he talks to everyone and i was really amazed when i i met him um the other thing too is you know you have so many papers and every time that i i read rick marin i didn't know who you were before we met but you imagine someone like a lot older and established and everything yeah and <laughs> now those were the years in burn i'm telling you <laughs> years in burn we had no choice but to publish a lot so uh a lot of people actually will say that you know uh they just don't really assume uh because of the number of, of publications but like i said it was just i was just scared i mean it was just i was scared and i had to publish a lot because i didn't want to be uh i didn't want to be in a bad situation with my bosses there so i was just working my butt off during those years so yeah the the next question is what are you the most grateful about your career uh definitely my my supervisors like i said uh they've been helpful in many many aspects and um just having the opportunity to meet some of these guys and 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 work with them so closely and now be respected by a lot of them you know a lot of it's just uh you'd never have this kind of opportunity uh without these these people you know it's sometimes it's like you know i have many years ago i had no business lecturing let's say at europario and uh, all of a sudden in 2012 you know i'm one of these young guys lecturing on the main podium and a lot of that has to do with you know your your help from your mentors who are who are helping you uh reach these platforms and then more people get to know who you are they might like your style or your papers and they invite you to different places and you know from there you can expand 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 so without question like i said my my mentors if i had any advice to give anybody who wanted to pursue you know a career in academics it's really to find uh, a mentor that's really well respected and who doesn't like to compete uh with people you know there's different types of mentors as well some of them are very competitive and some of them they just want to help bring you up and so the people that I've collaborated with the most such as Tony Schooling and Michael Picos as you said about about Dr Picos um you know he's got no ego he's not trying to hold me down he's not trying to be better than somebody else he's just you know let's get jobs done let's help out this young guy and you know from that perspective over the numerous years that I've known him now it's been almost uh four and a half years it's just been a real joy and I just feel like every time that I walk into his institute and we're about to teach it's it's a really exciting experience as you can imagine because you know you get to teach with this guy and you know I have this small little role in the program but I'm still there and I'm thankful so it's it's a cool experience um and actually next week we're going to do the first course again so it'll be my first post course in real life post covid so uh looking forward to it Um so before we started the interview I posted um Instagram story and I collected a few questions from people. Okay. Um one of them asked where is the field of biomaterial for regeneration heading in the next 5 to 10 years? Um you know I'm a big believer in growth factors and so when we wrote the textbook on on 
on uh, biomaterials, and we were looking at kind of what's new, what's exciting, et cetera, everything seemed to be pointed more and more towards growth factors. And, you know, it's a real pity, like I said, with, we had done some work actually with, a lot of people don't know this, but with BMP9. And BMP9 is a very, very uh, strong osteoinductive biomaterial. It's much better than BMP2, which everybody knows infused bone, for instance. But BMP9, you can use at much lower doses, and it's a lot more effective. And so when, when you actually do research in that field and you're trying to make bone, and you're comparing your bone induction potential when you look at a growth factor versus a bone grafting material, I mean, the growth factors are just amazing. Every time that I see a growth factor like BMP2 and you actually do these animal studies, you know, when we test osteoinduction, we have to make muscle in bo uh, bone and muscle, right? So we take a growth factor or we take a biomaterial, we put it in the muscle of let's say a rat or a beagle dog, whatever it may be. And if it makes bone right in the middle of muscle, you know, it's pretty amazing. And that's considered osteoinduction. Mm. And there's only two products that can do that. That's BMPs and allografts, right? And BMPs do it better. Well, it's amazing when you actually do these experiments. Imagine you take a liquid, a liquid BMP2, and you put it in muscle, and then you go back in four weeks later and you pull out a chunk of bone, you know, and that's where I think that field and that space is just incredible. So when you look at that, GEM21, uh, now FGF2, is there's work that's being done there. There's some work being done with BMP9. GDF5 is another growth factor. Mm -hmm. You know, I think hopefully in the future there'll be more people that do work like that uh, in that space there. Yeah. Okay. Um, what are some of the common misconceptions about PRF? I would say the biggest one is that it's a big bone inducer. So, you know, a lot of people think it's really inducing a lot of bone, and some people even call it osteoinductive. And so that would be probably the biggest <laughs> one is that it's not as bone inducing as it is for soft tissue. I would say it's probably a lot better for soft tissue than, um, than anything else. But, you know, that field is very interesting because uh, we're actually in the process of writing the new edition of the textbook for dentistry. So the one that I wrote in 2016 is being updated and it's going to be published next year in 2021. And over the last five years, you know, there's been a huge amount of work. Uh, between horizontal centrifugation to heating, you know, when you heat the plasma, that makes the membranes last instead of two to three weeks, it'll last four to six months, wow. right? So you can actually take a PRF membrane that's only going to last two to three weeks. If you heat it in a special way using that device, that membrane can last four to six months. So, you so can actually, do, you, do you heat it while it spins? or No, you heat it afterwards. So it's a okay. separate process. And when you do that, like I said, it makes pretty big changes. And, uh, you know, that's pretty amazing to see some of these new advancements in that space there. Um, I always say that it's probably one of the most poorly studied biomaterials available uh, on the market today. And I always say the following. When we were doing work, let's say, with Osteogan, and it was about to be launched by Stroman, before it ever got launched, you know, we did all this basic research. We did all these cell studies. We did all these animal studies in rats, rabbits, dogs, monkeys. I mean, just a huge amount of work because Stroman is a very good company. And before they would ever launch anything, they wanted to make sure that there was, you know, 15 studies, uh, lots of data by many colleagues and experts tested in many facilities, and then they would launch it to the market. Okay. Mm. With clay rich fibrin, it's completely different. And I always say the reason why is because if you look at a bone graft or you look at an implant, Every time that a company sells, you know, a $200 implant, let's say, there's a lot of profit that's made there, of course, by selling one of these implants, right? These implants are not that expensive, let's say, and they make quite a bit of money, and most of that money goes into research. 
So every implant that's sold, there's all this money going into research, research, research to make them a little bit better, better, better. With platelet-rich fibrin, when you have a machine or a centrifuge that you might just get from the lab, you're only buying tubes yeah. and you're only buying a tube for a dollar. And the company might produce these tubes for maybe 50, 60 cents. So they're only making 40 cents per tube. So if you use four tubes in your case, they made a dollar 60 on you in that case. Mm. And so when they say, hey, let's do some research on platelet-rich fibrin, no company wants to invest in any research in that field because it's not a, a money-making field. And for that reason, you know, I always say that the de development of that whole field has been really slow in compared to other fields. And the quality of research especially has been rather poor. There's never been like very big names that have really done a lot of work in that space uh, until more recently. And I think that's one of the reasons why even today, I always feel like I'm playing a little bit catch up. Like we should know more than what we currently know. And the biggest one more recently has been the tubes. You know, the tubes of play the fibrin, uh, they matter even more than the centrifuge, okay? Mm -hmm. And you know, just cause it's a red top tube doesn't mean it's the same as another red top tube or another one. There's very, very different properties in those tubes. And you're buying those tubes between 85 cents to $1.35 each, and it makes a huge impact. And so that's another thing that people uh, should probably be more aware of. Can you talk a bit more about like the difference between LPRF, uh, IPRF, APRF? Like, I, I feel like out there, there's like so many different people talking about PRF, uh, but what exactly differs between each one of them? Um, the biggest difference I would say is just the trade names, to be honest with you. I mean, uh, when you look at the scientific differences between all of them, there has been some advancements that have been made. So of course the LPRF was the first system and they were mm. spinning very, very fast. So when you have the LPRF protocol, let's say you spin very, very fast because originally Joseph Chacroon and his colleagues, they wanted to separate the layers before it would clot because it was the first time they never used anticoagulants. But the problem is, is in a centrifuge, especially on a fixed angle, the faster this thing's spinning, the more the cells go to the bottom, right? Mm. So the more the tubes go to the, the more the cells go to the bottom, but you take platelet-rich fibrin at the top. So the problem is, is you lose a lot of the cells, okay? So the problem with LPRF in general, uh, the benefit of course, is that they have a lot of data. And of course it's FDA cleared, which is great. Um, the disadvantage is the protocols are just too fast. And so most of the cells go to the bottom of the tube. Uh, APRF, so the other one was, when you started to spin slower for less time, and that was work that was done by uh, Sharem Ganazzi and some of his colleagues in Germany, they found that more of the cells stayed in the upper layer. Mm. So all they did was they slowed it down, and instead of pushing all the cells to the bottom, they would keep it more concentrated and evenly distributed in the upper platelet-rich fibrin layer. And then they called that advanced platelet-rich fibrin. So again, I don't really care too much about the name, but mm. the reality scientifically is just you spin a little bit slower for less time, you keep more of the cells in that upper layer which was a benefit there. And then uh, after that, like I said, the biggest major discovery was made by our group where we just started going horizontal. And when we went horizontal, that's when we had a more even distribution and we could concentrate even further. And the reason why, is, and it's very logical, right? If this is your fixed angle centrifuge and the tubes are going in 45 degrees, mm. okay? If you're a little platelet and you start down here, you've got to climb all the way up on an angle to get to the top. So imagine that little platelet, he's got to climb all the way up this hill while all the red blood cells that are heavier are coming down. If you just put this tube horizontally, now if that little platelet starts at the bottom of the tube, he just has to go across in a straight line. Mm. And then 
the red blood cells, they can just basically pass one another very easily, as opposed to trying to climb up this mountain when all the red blood cells are coming down. And so that made it a lot more effective. And so, you know, as long as you have a good horizontal centrifuge and use proper protocols that are tested, you'll get a very good result. You know, so that's, that's something that we clearly uh, mentioned in the book. And uh, in this new edition of the textbook, we actually teach people how to calculate G-force so they can take any centrifuge and basically calculate how to make it uh, more optimized um, so that they have the knowledge to do that as well. Um, since we have you and it's such a, you know, a good opportunity, so many people ask like, you know, PA, uh, Gen 21, Amdogain, TRF, like those are different growth factors used for soft tissue, bone, what would you say to someone who's saying like, oh, you know, I, I wouldn't use PRF because I'm going to use uh, Gem21, let's say, or Emdogain since you've worked with it also. Yep. Um, you know, we've done some studies in all of the areas. So, you know, we have proper knowledge. Um, when you look at the comparative studies and randomized clinical studies, in both fields, they compare very similarly. Okay. Um, we've recently done a dog study that I was in Japan for comparing endogain as well as to play the rich fibrin for gentle recession <laughs> and um, as well as intrabony defect. And it appears that endogain seems to make uh, actual true periodontal regeneration a little bit better than play the rich fibrin. And play the rich fibrin is a little bit better for soft tissue. Okay, <laughs> but it's very minimal. And again, it's hard to, to translate some of these animal studies sometimes to human studies because, you know, you might not see. Both of them are growth factors. Both of them help with uh, regenerating both those tissues primarily. Emdogain um, is a little bit better for heart tissues, right? So it's a little bit better at regenerating cementum, as well as some studies have shown that you can use Emdogain a little bit more effectively for even bone, although it's not commonly done. It's got some osteoblastic activity that I think is better than uh, PRF, whereas PRF is better on gingival fibroblasts, and mm. uh, uh, especially skin cells. You know, it's amazing. When in our lab, we did a huge array of different cell types uh, with platelet-rich fibrin, so chondrocytes, hair cells, skin cells, gingival fibroblasts, palatal fibroblasts from everywhere, chondrocytes from the knee, just a whole bunch of different cell types and figured out how this stuff works. <laughs> and it worked least effective for bone and it worked best for soft tissue cells of your face. Of the face? Of the face, yeah. So the colleagues that use this stuff in facial aesthetics, you know, for microneedling, vampire facial, this type of stuff, yes. it's actually very effective for uh, proliferating and uh, helping collagen production in, in skin cells. So that's one area when I saw that data, I said it makes sense that those people are using it uh, so readily in that field. I think they're also used for fillers, right? For... A little bit, yeah. That's where, you know, the biofiller, you know how we can make those membranes that will last four to six months? Mm. Well, you can actually make the, the liquid and then you can inject that in somebody's uh, lips or cheekbones, etc. And it'll last a little bit longer when you do it that way there, definitely. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, you know, in general, like to go more natural, right? So if you're going to have something injected or you're going to utilize the biomaterial, the more it resembles the human body. So whether it be an allograft, for instance, um, or whether it be a natural material and it can be a connective tissue graft or play rich fibrin, the better it's going to adapt in, in the body. And um, I think that's a lot superior in the facial field when compared to like some of these women are injecting polymers and this other stuff and doing all this crazy stuff and putting in the body mm -hmm. um, I don't necessarily agree with but anyways 
Um, my next question is, you have given, you know, lectures all around the world and you, you've been to many meetings and lectures. Is, is there one that was most memorable for you? Oh, man, that's a hard question to answer. <laughs> um, I don't know, actually, which ones were the funnest. You know, I, I've had a lot of fun going to the International Academy of Peria ones, IAP. And uh, a lot of those were organized by different international colleagues in very weird places. Like I remember one was in Ukraine and that was a lot of fun. The one that was in one was in Romania as well, which was a lot of fun too, because uh, my supervisor, Tony Schoolian was from there. So it's, it was cool actually to live in Europe for such a number of years because, you know, being Canadian or living in the United States, as you know, you can go to a different city. And it can be literally like 3,000 kilometers or 3,000 miles away, but it almost feels like the same thing. Whereas in Europe, you know, these places can be totally, totally different. And uh, that was kind of uh, interesting to see. Um, so, yeah, there's a couple of fun places. Barcelona was a really fun place, too. So we had one of our junior PhD guys that was doing a lot of research in the lab. His name was Jordi Cavalli. And uh, he was from Spain and from Barcelona. And I got to go out there a few times and lecture at his university thereafter and Barcelona is always a fun place too so mm, that, that sounds like a a great place Barcelona yeah. it's uh you know I'm not gonna say Boston even though I I love Harvard and where you're at but not uh some of these European places are just a lot of fun to be at mm. uh, so just to go back uh, to your background you grew up in Ontario right so you're French Canadian but not Quebecois no yeah, you know, North Bay is about uh, 50 kilometers away from Quebec. It's right at the border. And so I went to an actual French high school. So I uh, learned French as my first language. And uh, my dad is French-Canadian, so he's French. And my mom is, uh, she was born in Italy, actually. And so between the two of them, they spoke uh, English to one another. And uh, to me, they would speak either English, Italian, or French. And uh, since I went to school in French from age three onwards, I, I could speak the language fluently. And um, and then afterwards, I went back to dental school in French as well. So it was a lot of fun. Do, do you speak a bit of Italian? I did, you know, but like many things, I just forgot, uh, just forgot mm. how to speak it because, you know, when you don't practice something, it's just you lose it. So, uh, But I can understand some things, of course. Mainly whenever my grandma's yelling at me, that's when I understand. And, <laughs> well, I I would be uh, scared talking French with you because I haven't spoken French uh, because I live in Boston for a while. Yeah, but sure. It gets rusty. It does, yeah, and it's the same for me now too. So <laughs> um, it was actually one of the fun things with uh, living in Europe was the fact that you know in Switzerland there's three or four main languages that are spoken anywhere you go, and um, I actually lived in a city called Neuchâtel. And it was only about 25 minutes away from Bern at the university. And so in Bern, the main language is German, but in Neuchâtel, it was French and it was only 25 minutes away. And so I actually would play uh, basketball, etc., with all my friends there in French. So I was speaking French every day when I was in Switzerland and then uh, going to work in this German atmosphere, which was not so fun, but uh, was all right. <laughs> um... So when you, you've wrote many books and, um, you know, what made you decide to give 100% of the royalty proceeding from your next generation uh, biomaterial book to create the uh, Dr. Jean-Marc Fillion scholarship? Yeah, I think it was just uh, 
just for recognition for all the contributions that he had made. It happened uh, when I was about to finish the textbook it was when he passed away essentially. And so I just wanted to do something um, as well. You know, when you grow up in a, a small little city like that and you live in a, you know, my parents were not wealthy by any means. My dad was a social worker. My mom was a stay at home mom. And, you know, I've made uh, much more money, so to speak, than I ever thought imagined just being a dentist. I mean, it's already a, a very, good profession that I'm very grateful to do. And so the extra money, like I said, I didn't mind. And, uh, you know, when you write a lot of research articles, you're always having to pay money, essentially to publish, as you probably know as well, right? It's like sometimes you get something back and you're like, oh man, that's, you know, $1,700 to get the, the, after you get the paper accepted, you're all excited. And then you got a bill that comes in that says in order to publish in this journal, it's 1700 bucks. So I was always used to either asking guys like Tony Schoolian or Danny Boozer if they would pay the fees uh, or having to pay them myself, which was kind of annoying as well. And so having the opportunity to actually get money back for writing something was very strange for me, right? After you've written 100 papers, I always say, I remember talking to uh, one of my colleagues, Dr. Schiffman, who was complaining one time that he, had, he was publishing a laser article. And after it was accepted, they sent him a bill that was like $1,300. And I told him, I said, you know, that happens more frequently than you think. I said, probably at our school, we probably spend about $50,000 per year just in publication fees. And so all of a sudden you're getting money now because you wrote a book. It's like, whoa. So it was just weird for me to even get money for the book. So I, I didn't mind donating uh, the money to the, the high school. So that was, you know, a, a nice gesture. So Yeah, it's so generous of you. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. You know, I get to go back to uh, my parents live in North Bay, so it gives me a excuse to go back and visit them in the summertime. And then I actually go to the high school graduation and I present the award to three students. And usually the first place student gets uh, a full scholarship to a Canadian school. And oh. uh, so they get their first year paid for at university. And then I present two uh, smaller awards for two, three thousand each. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it's fun to see the little kids that are about to go to university and I just tell them to work really hard and publish a lot. So. Can, can it pay for them if they want to go to Harvard? No. Probably, <laughs> probably too expensive. Um, so, you know, you're very accomplished and you publish so much and uh, you lecture pretty much everywhere. What is the next step for you now? Or what are you trying to do more? Um, you know, it's funny. In research, and when you talk to a lot of uh, people in research, there's... Um, there's like, I would say there's really a window where you have an opportunity to really publish a lot. And I think that's between 30 and 40 is what uh, most people tell me. And even when you talk to, you know, older gentlemen, because as you get older, you get, you know, very busy, of course, with whether it be with your family or whether it be with, uh, you know, if you become a chair or director of a program, etc. there's a lot more time commitment for those types of things. And so right now I'm working on a enormous, I would say, bone grafting project. Um, I think it's going to completely change the field of bone grafts entirely. Um, and I would say it's probably the biggest project I'll ever work on in my career. And um, I think it's probably going to take about three to four years to finalize. And when that's done, I'll probably uh, slow down in research. So you won't see me publishing 30 to 40 articles per year. It'll be more like, uh, you know, maybe 10 or so. And um, I, I just want to get this project done right now. So my big focus is really on that one there. And um, after that, like I said, I'll probably focus more on teaching and uh, we'll see from there. Like I said, every year that I, I do things, um, you know, there's always things that change and you get new opportunities. So things change all the time. 
but uh, in general, that's the big project. And I would like to actually go back to university and um, study perio actually, and do a perio degree with, um, I'm actually talking to Mark Bashera and a couple mm. other colleagues to try and figure out if we can do it together, actually to work on these bone grafting projects as well. And so to collaborate together uh, mutually, it would be a lot of fun because we went to school many, many years ago in 2003 and uh, it would be cool to go back now as a senior, senior uh, uh, perio resident, so. <laughs> that, that's amazing. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of people out there don't know that you're not a periodontist and um, tell me why, because I think this would be good. Why do you, like after doing all this, why do you still want to become a periodontist? Um, to be honest with you, it's just, the the research grind of writing many research articles and books is very very hard it's not it's not easy you know it's when you work in research you always have to be kind of leading edge so to speak and um i don't think it's possible to do this job five five or six days a week i think it's a full-time commitment when i see guys like tony scullion that are still at the upper levels and at the top levels these are guys that are working seven days a week every single day it's just a grind uh, so to speak and so I wanted to transition. I wanted to contribute a lot as much as I could to the research field while I was younger, between 30 and 40. And then afterwards, I'll transition more towards clinical practice. Right now, I do two days a week uh, in private practice, and I basically only do perio things. You know, I learned a lot, of course, living in Switzerland and working with Tony Schooley and that, you know, I got a lot of uh, skill set in that space there. But, um, you know, afterwards, I'd rather do it's hard to grind it out, let's say, in a lab, you know, be looking at under a microscope hours and hours and hours at a time. and um you know my time is is coming to an end like i said this big bone grafting one is very important for me and when i get that one there done then i'll i'll want to go more more full-time practice which will be a little easier not easier but just a little more rewarding you know it's nice to talk to real humans and interact with people uh, <laughs> as opposed to just looking down a microscope all the time so <laughs> um i think stacy is asking what do you think the field of periodontology will look like in 10 years you know, I think it's going to be more and more important, to be honest with you. Uh, it's conversations that we have a lot with uh, guys like Tony Schoolian and a couple of <laughs> other colleagues, and I'm sure you're in the same boat. You know, when I got to train and do a lot of work with Tony Schoolian, and we were working in, in, his, in his practice in the university, etc., one of the things that was very important to European colleagues is that they're always trying to save teeth. You know, very different than North America is that when you do perio in some of these European schools, you don't place any implants. You know, when you do a, when you're a periodontist in Europe, mm. they don't they place two implants maybe, and the rest of the time they just learn how to do gingival grafting, and they learn how to do intrabony defect regeneration. They do no implants. So unlike in North America, where you're very focused on placing implants, learning implants, and all implant therapy, that's like fifty or more percent of your residency. Yeah, over there you're just trying to save teeth, grafting, gingival grafting, and and. Um, and intrabony defect regeneration. I think, of course, right now is a perfect, perfect opportunity without question to place implants. I think for the next 10 to 20 years, implants will just absolutely dominate everything because there's so many people that are baby boomers that have, you know, pretty bad um, teeth, essentially, that need these implants, and there's a big service there. But when we look at people like your age or my age, it's like saying to you, how many of your friends are missing teeth? You know, there's not really a whole lot of them. You know, people that are, you know, under the age of 40 today, most people have their full dentition. 
and most people are going to want to keep all of their teeth most likely most people most people are not going to have the same type of uh defects and complications etc probably what's going to happen is a lot of them are going to develop some kind of periodontal disease and they're going to have these five six seven millimeter pockets and that's where i think that if you're a perio and you can regenerate these pockets and bring them back to three millimeters or so mm -hmm. there's going to be a big 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 market for that and I think that's the most periodontists that are very heavily involved in the field. I think that's where they're trying to go with uh, that therapy. And um, we're doing a lot of work right now with lasers, uh, with, you know, minimally invasive or even non-surgically using lasers in these five, six, seven millimeter pockets, and then using growth factors afterward, after mm. they've all been, uh, pockets been cleaned out, either put endogain uh, without surgery, non-surgically, or put a little play the rich vibrant clot, tuck it in there in the pockets. We've been doing a lot of work actually with taking the liquid platelet-rich fibrin with antibiotics, like you would use Arrestin, mm. right? We take the same concentration, we mix them together, and then we put that in the pocket and wait for it to clot. And then now your platelet-rich fibrin will act as your little uh, delivery system for your antibiotics, which will last two weeks, just like you know some of the other delivery systems, whether it be Arrestin or Periochip, etc. You know the bad thing about using some of those other perio chips and those things is that the carrier system which is designed to release the antibiotics slowly but surely they're polymers a lot of the time and they're a little bit inflammatory so you put that in somebody's pocket you get the good thing maybe you get antibiotic relief you get the bad thing that you're putting some kind of polymer and that polymer to inflammatory cells you know is not not very good it causes inflammation mm. and so if we can deliver them with platelet-rich fibrin it's very cheap it's very easy you know you can buy the same capsule that has the same concentration, mix it with liquid flavored fibrin. You do that for a dollar or two, and you put those, you can do a full arch, just put a little bit in every pocket, wait for it to clot, and then you have a nice little clotted platelet-rich fibrin membrane that's inside the pocket that's loaded with antibiotics, okay? And so we're doing work like that to see if we can get a little bit better clinical attachment level by using lasers and growth factors, maybe antibiotics, mm. just trying a lot of different things uh, people have been trying to mix platelet-rich fibrin with endogain, you know, just trying all kinds of things. And I think those that work in that field, you know, if you really focus, I mean, if you personally, like, I mean, you, you yourself focus very heavily on uh, these intrabony defects that are five, six, seven millimeters, these pockets, how do you treat those and bring them back to, let's say, three millimeters? The person that figures out how to do that, either non-surgically or minimally invasive, that's going to be a breakthrough for the whole perial field. And I think that's where people are going. And I think probably you'll need to use growth factors to be able to achieve that. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And I suppose the PRF will also accelerate healing and reattachment. That's, that's, when that's you use uh, it. the plan, right? So you can use it as a delivery system, but it also helps, you know, uh, as you know, uh, forming a stable clot in a pocket, uh, in a perio pocket is very important. So when you can make these super clots with platelet-rich fibrin with a nice dense matrix that's already formed, you know, there's some advantages there. And of course, there's uh, super doses of leukocytes. Mm. Of course, with the white blood cells, they should theoretically help fight the infection a little bit better. And so hopefully, like I said, there'll be some uh, advantage there. But of course, it all needs to be tested. So these are all things, like I said, that are in randomized studies. And uh, for those that want to do research in that field, like I said, you can contact me at any time and, and be involved because I think that's a that'll be a big, big, big field. Yeah. Um, thank you so much uh, for your time. And you know, if people want to ask questions, you can use the little 
question mark box uh, below if you want to ask uh, Dr. Myron a question. Uh, maybe just to finish, do you have any word of advice to someone who's starting in the academic career, trying to survive, trying to publish? Uh, what would be the one or two things that you can uh, suggest? Uh, you know, those are good questions too. So, you know, there's actually lots of advice that I can give because, you know, I've been in that space for a long time. The first one, uh, <laughs> of course, that I already talked about is find a good mentor. That's by far the most important thing. But a couple of things that are also really relevant to us is I think when you have a chance to live in different places, it's very, very helpful. And the reason why is because you can make more colleagues and more partnerships in different, different parts of the world. You know, in research, they always say the quote, publish or perish, right? I'm mm -hmm. sure you've heard that before. And the reason why is because, you know, as your papers increase and the more papers you have, the more chance you have to get your paper cited. And as a researcher, it's always, you know, what's your H index? What's how many citations per year are you getting? And these things here become very relevant. And the more early you start with those papers publishing, the better it will be for your career. Because mm -hmm. now instead of having a paper that's two years old, if I published it 15 years ago, it's had 15 years to get cited. So that paper is, you know, the ranking of that paper is kind of boosted a little bit higher. So there's a, a big advantage there. Um, and then the advantage that we really have, and I always say this, uh, to, to multiple people is that when I was in, in uh, Switzerland, you know, it was a great place to work because it was so international. And when you have the chance to go to an international school like Harvard, like uh, University of Michigan, like Bern, Switzerland or Zurich, like there's, there's these great hubs where you get all these international people. And the advantage to that is that if I publish a work with Yufeng Zhang, with Tony Skoulian, with Daniel Boozer and with myself, you know, if we published a work on autogenous bone, for instance, an autogenous bone paper, well, now I'm living in the United States and I'm lecturing on that topic, right? So that means that the North American market is learning about this paper and it's getting cited because I'm lecturing in North America. Tony Schooling and Daniel Boozer are still lecturing about that in Europe. So the European colleagues are learning about this paper and it's getting cited more. Getting cited in the United States, getting cited in, in Europe as well. You know, Yufeng is now in China and that's, many people living in China and he's lecturing in China and lecturing about. So when you have these international collaborators and they're all working together all around the world, when you can publish with these guys that are living a little bit in different parts of the world, when you, when you have these guys all lecturing on the same topic, now, instead of just being this little Rick Myron guy in, in Florida, lecturing in Florida, now I have colleagues that are a little bit everywhere in the world and that knowledge gets dispersed a little bit faster. You know, so there was an advantage there. Today, I think with social media, I don't even think we've reached close to the potential of uh, social media because, of course, you know, there's just a huge opportunity with social media to be able to, like you're doing, you know, you can teach people how to do things all over the world um, and very easily, actually, right? And so I think for you uh, and for other colleagues that have really dominated the social media space that are very good at it, uh, there's really opportunities for there. I mean, I would love to have uh, a big social media network. Uh, you know, I, I just got Instagram a couple of weeks ago. I've met it. <laughs> so I think I have like 200 friends following me or something. But, That's know. why I jump onto this opportunity, but we'll make it happen. You'll, you'll get 5,000 by the end of the year. Yeah. yeah, but you know, there's really a big opportunity because then like you can share knowledge um, this way here. There's one way to do it, which is textbooks and publications, which is kind of the old way to do things. And, you know, I've had this conversation with Dr. Picos because, you know, before we could get 
and that was how you transfer knowledge. You wrote a textbook, you, you publish articles and good journals. And then, you know, people started reading them and all over the world because they were, you know, they had subscriptions to those journals today. I think there's two ways to learn. There's online with social media and then there's the traditional academic way of doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, for new people that are around our age, I think you need to have some kind of presence, most likely in both of them. I mean, I always get yelled at by Mark Bashir. He's like, you don't even have an Instagram account. I said, <laughs> I'm too busy writing, writing research articles and books and I have time. Uh, but the reality is that space and that, that opportunity is uh, one that I think more people should um, definitely be involved in because it is really a beautiful way to transfer knowledge and, and be able to get uh, new learning experiences. Um, I think if, you know, for example, for you, uh, if you wrote a couple of papers that were very good and you're showing them, and I know you've showed some of them on, on, uh, on social media, the more often you do this kind of thing, the faster you can get your papers more cited because you can easily have it shared to, you know, 10, 20, 30,000 people just, you know, at the click of a button, which is amazing. You know, mm -hmm. if you think of, you know, what traditionally what I would have to do is go lecture here in front of 200 people, go lecture there at 200 people to, you know, it would take me uh, a whole year to reach the same audience that you can reach in, in a few minutes, which is incredible, actually. And so I think that that's a great, great service that you're doing for these people. And, you know, being a specialist yourself and teaching all these soft tissue grafting techniques, et cetera, uh, with your platform is just a, a real nice service that you're providing to all these colleagues. So. Yeah, yeah. I gotta, I gotta get on that bandwagon somehow and start doing it. And I, don't even have, like I, said, I don't even know how to share posts and stuff. So, it's, it's, yeah. Huh. Well, yeah, we'll we'll get you there. Like, uh, I'm happy <laughs> yeah. that you, we started this today, and it was yeah. such a good conversation, and I've learned so much from you. Um, Instagram's gonna shut down in like about two minutes. Oh no problem. Yeah. But uh. Let's see if we can answer one last question here. Uh, oh, this is a cool, cool question. If you had to pick one place to live in, which one? Canada, US, Switzerland? I'd live in, uh, I'd live where I'm at right now. I think, you know, I have the ability to live anywhere I want, uh, so to speak. And so I really like United States. Like I said, you get a lot of opportunities here and the weather's beautiful in Florida. I always joke around with my buddy, Mark Bashero, who's up in Canada, just freezing his butt off all the time. When I talk <laughs> Florida, but he's got some commitments up there. So I understand he can stay in the cold and I'm happy here in Florida. So yeah. Yeah. U.S. is good. Um, I like it a lot down here. It's, it's fun. Yeah, absolutely. And feel free to say like, you don't want to answer this question, but you, since you've mentioned it so many times during the talk, like how old are you, Rick? I'm 36. 36. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So I got, uh, I always say I'm going to do research hardcore till I'm about 40 and then probably slow down from there. So you have four more years to publish like uh, 200 papers. So, yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, it was great to talk to you today and, you know, good luck with everything that you're doing. Uh, yeah. I really look up to you and it's great and good luck with that big bone project that you're, you're doing. Thank you so much. Yeah. Much appreciated. And thanks for having me on and uh, looking forward to, to seeing more of your stuff on, on Instagram. Absolutely. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the seventh episode of Office Hours with Professor Nguyen. Please subscribe and stay tuned for more interviews.